Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Taming the Shrew podcast. Uh, this week, we're going to be looking at a trio of articles in our most recent Journal Club recap, where we uh, look at what may be most emergency physicians' desert island drug, or at least one of their desert island drugs, and that's ketamine. Um, the first paper we're going to look at is going to look at the rate of administration of ketamine for pain control in the emergency department and whether or not a slower rate of administration uh, will lead to less dysphoric effects. And then the second article we'll look at is going to be a retrospective analysis of the NEAR database looking at the uh, hemodynamic effects of ketamine in RSI as compared to Atomidate and whether or not it truly performs as well as we think it does. Um, and the final paper we'll look at is um, the co-administration of Haldol or Versed prior to ketamine uh, during procedural sedation to try and limit some of the dysphoric effects and agitation that can result during procedural sedation with ketamine. So to kick us off first, here's uh, Dr. Danny Garwin. Paper 1, a perspective randomized double dummy trial comparing IV push low-dose ketamine to short infusion of low-dose ketamine for treatment of pain in the ED. All right. Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Danny Gorin. I'm one of the uh, third years at University of Cincinnati, and we're um, going to be kicking off another rendition of the R3 Journal Club. Um, I'm here with my co-residents, Dr. Logan Walsh and Dr. Megan Frederick, um, to give you some insight onto a couple different papers that we selected with a, a ketamine theme. Um, we all know that ketamine has become a pretty popular uh, medication to use in the emergency department. And so we were able to find three um, pretty solid articles um, kind of going through ketamine's usage um, and a few different aspects and ways that we uh, use it in the emergency department. Um, these articles offer a little bit of a variety too, because um, a couple of them were uh, single center, center trials, while another one used a like large database um, to look at ketamine's usage. Um, so it kind of gives you some good uh, different perspectives um, from evidence-based medicine and some different research techniques. Um, so with that, uh, we'll kind of dive right into the first article. Uh, so I'm going to be discussing an article titled A Prospective Randomized Double Dummy Trial Comparing IV Push Low-Dose Ketamine to Short Infusion of Low-Dose Ketamine for the Treatment of Pain in the ED. And this was done by Sergey Modov et al. Um, out of New York in 2017, and it was published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Um, so just some brief background on this topic. Uh, we all know that ketamine is getting more frequently used for pain control, um, and that's given in the 0.1 to 0.3 milligram per kilogram dosages. There have been many studies and trials showing ketamine's effectiveness as a pain control agent, and also people citing things like its opioid sparing benefits, as well as kind of its hemodynamic stability as reasons to use it. Um, in these trials, they did note that people started to know that observationally, um, there are some side effects that can be significantly limiting and kind of disruptive to the patient. Uh, and, and anecdotally, these uh, studies noted that they seem to be noting these side effects more frequently, um, af like soon after the drug was given, uh, and they seem to be less frequent when the medication was given slower. And so this article kind of looked into that theory that if the medicine is given, if the ketamine is given slower, that there may be a limitation in some of these side effects. And some of the side effects that they were most frequently seeing were things like dizziness, uh, nausea, vomiting, and this feeling of unreality that we often uh, refer to as the K-hole in the emergency room. Um, and then in my experience at our own emergency department, there's typically for me, there was a general understanding that ketamine needed to be pushed slow um, when given as a pain dose, but I, I wasn't quite aware of what our specific protocol was for what our nurses were following. And so we'll kind of dive into that in our discussion and see how this applies to this paper. Um, so going through the methods uh, of this paper, 
this again was a prospective randomized double blind double dummy trial. Um, and so what that means is that this is kind of meets like that top tier criteria for literature in that it's kind of the gold standard. It's a double blind randomized prospective trial. And they also had this double dummy effect, which I'll explain when I go through the intervention arms. Um, this was done at an urban community teaching hospital, a single site. Uh, and they are enrolled patients in a convenience sample. So uh, they only enrolled patients from 8 a.m. to 8 uh, p.m. on Monday through Friday um, and missed kind of those late night and weekend crowds uh, because that was the times when their ED pharmacist was there to randomize the patients. Um, they had some, they basically included patients that were adult aged, uh, 18 to 65, that presented with either abdominal flank, back, traumatic chest or musculoskeletal pain that was greater than or equal to four on the pain score and patients that were alert and oriented and able to consent. They did have some pretty uh, significant exclusion criteria and I'll just highlight some of the ones that jumped out to us. They exclude any patients who were altered, uh, any patients that were either really thin, less than 46 kilos or very large, greater than 115 kilos, uh, any patients with unstable vital signs, um, any patients with head or eye injuries, and then they also excluded patients that were either intoxicated or um, on drugs or had a significant psychiatric illness. And they also made the caveat that they only included patients uh, who had not received any recent analgesics, um, so less than four hours. They split their um, groups into two different groups. Um, so one group was the, the push dose, uh, the, the push dose ketamine. Um, so those patients received the IV ketamine 0.3 milligrams per kilo over five minutes. So their slow protocol, or sorry, their their protocol that was give gave the drug quicker was over five minutes slow push. And then uh, their other arm was the uh, slow infusion arm, which they received 0.3 milligrams per kilo uh, of ketamine mixed in a 100 cc bag of normal saline. And that was given via an IV pump over 15 minutes. Um, so like I said before, this was a double dummy trial. So all patients received a placebo of the other intervention. Uh, so for example, if they got the IV push dose, um, given over five minutes, they also received a placebo, of normal saline over 15 minutes and vice versa. And everybody was blinded to this, the randomization, except for the pharmacist. Um, in terms of their outcomes, uh, they had two primary outcomes. Um, so they assessed the rate severity of nine different adverse events. On, on something called the SERSDA scale, uh, which stands for the Side Effects Rating Scale for Dissociative Anesthetics. And so this is basically just a score um, from zero to four, uh, with zero meaning the side effect is absent, all the way up to four meaning the side effect was very bothersome. And the patients were asked these questions uh, at random inter or at regular intervals from five to 120 minutes. Uh, their second primary outcome was the severity of their agitation or sedation on the RAS scale, um, which is a commonly used scale to assess uh, kind of the uh, sedation effects of anesthetics. And so that's measured on a scale of negative four with the most sedative to positive four being the most agitated. Uh, they had three secondary outcomes um, looking at pain severity, changes in vital signs, and need for rescue analgesia. So they ended up enrolling 24 patients in each group um, at, for a total of 48 patients total. Uh, they did calculate before uh, they did their trial that they would need 24 patients per group to achieve adequate power. Uh, but if you look at their year one here, you'll notice that actually 21 patients in each group completed the entire protocol. And so three patients ended up losing their data um, either because they were discharged or transferred from the ED. Uh, but at least at the beginning, they had 24 patients per group to meet their 
the power that they calculated they would need to achieve a significant result. They ended up finding two different significant results uh, looking at uh, their primary outcomes. So the first was what they found uh, a, a significant difference of the feeling of unreality on the SIRSA scale. So in the IV push group, they found that in total, over any time, 91.7% of patients um, experienced this feeling of unreality, while in the slow infusion group, only 54.2% experienced this. Now, their specific significant result uh, was the median SIRSA score at five minutes. Um, so that, that, like, so that was pretty soon after they were given the medicine, and at five minutes, the median SIRSA score for the IV push group was three indicating that that side effect of the feeling of unreality was bothersome uh, compared to zero for the slow infusion group, meaning that that side effect was completely absent. At 15 minutes, there was still a difference in that SIRSDA score. It was two for the IV push group and zero for the slow infusion group, uh, but that result was not significant. Um, none of the other side effects had any significant difference, um, and you can see their side effects listed uh, in table two in this paper. Uh, the second significant result they found was uh, the degree of sedation on the RAS scale measured at five minutes. So at all other times, there was no significant difference, but at five minutes, there was a difference between the group. So the IV push group had a score of negative, a median score of negative two at five minutes, while the slow infusion group had a score of zero. Uh, they also found that all their secondary outcomes, there was no difference. So there was no difference in pain severity, no difference in the changes in vital signs, and no difference in the need for rescue analgesia. Uh, so overall, this was a pretty well-done RCT. Uh, it kind of meets that, again, that top tier of evidence-based medicine um, being a, a randomized prospective double-blind and even a double-dummy trial. Uh, it looked at a relevant question that we think that is pretty applicable to the emergency room um, and certainly is something that can be important when we're treating patients uh, for uh, with pain-dose ketamine to try to limit kind of these feelings of unreality or other side effects that they might be experiencing. Uh, there certainly were some limitations to this paper. Uh, we talked about kind of how the, each group was pretty small. Um, they did calculate that they would need 24 people in each group to achieve their power uh, to find a difference, but they ended up losing three patients in each group to uh, the completion of their protocol. Um, and so you know, didn't know if there was was a way to potentially, why didn't they include a few more patients so they had, had a little bit of a buffer zone. It's also kind of comp or kind of can be limiting when they enroll a convenient sample of patients. They only enrolled patients um, certain times during weekdays, so they might be missing um, patients that typically come in overnight or on the weekends. This, uh, this uh, study also excluded quite a bit of patients, and we thought, you know, when we were talking about how this applied to our patient population at UC, Typically, when we're giving pain dose ketamine, it's especially we looked into our protocol at UC and the way it was written several years ago, pain dose ketamine can only be given after another analgesic has failed. Now, in practice, that's not necessarily how we do it every time, but that's how our protocol is written. And this study specifically excluded patients that had received um, analgesics prior to administration of ketamine. So it might not be totally applicable uh, to when we typically use ketamine. Uh, and so they also excluded patients that had unstable vital signs, you know, e either very skinny or very large patients, um, patients with alcohol abuse or alcohol on board. Um, so all these patients are some of the ones that we kind of frequently give uh, ketamine to, especially the one that jumped out to me was the unstable vital signs. I mean, when we're in our, our SRU, our trauma bay, and, you know, the sometimes typically when I'm giving pain dose ketamine right off the bat, it's for patients that maybe I'm a little bit more worried about giving fentanyl too for 
either hemodynamic instability or some other reason. And so that kind of patient wouldn't totally fit um, into this study. But I think overall, the general sense that we got from this paper was that, you know, maybe pushing, giving that medicine slower will be better and would help in in certain situations to limit these side effects. Uh, We did look into our specific protocol at UC and the way it's written is actually that the nurses are required to give the, the the ketamine as a push over one minute is how it's written in our protocol. So our the way that we give ketamine as a pain dose in our ED is actually even faster than their fast group in this study. Uh, this could lead to discussions about even slowing down what we do right now for our IV push um, pain dose ketamine, and that could further limit side effects because I'm sure that we might have higher side effects giving it over one minute than they do giving their push over three to five minutes. And we also talked about how this would certainly require nursing buy-in. You know, it, it certainly would require a discussion to see what is really more cumbersome. Is it more cumbersome to for nurses to stand at the bed for three to five minutes and push, you know, a small volume of ketamine through an IV? Or is it more cumbersome to get an IV pole and an IV pump set up and then plug that out, like mix up the medication into the 100cc bag uh, and give that over 15 minutes. That's that's certainly a, a question that would need to be brought up to an operations committee or to the nurses individually to see what they would prefer and what's what's easier for them. But like I said, overall, I thought this was a very well done study. It certainly looked at a relevant question and gave us some insight that you know the general sense that giving this medicine slower uh, would be more helpful. Paper two. Ketamine versus Itomidid in Perintubation Hypotension, a National Emergency Airway Registry Study. All right, guys, uh, I'm Logan Walsh uh, talking about the second paper here, which was ketamine versus atomidate and peri-intubation hypotension, a national emergency airway registry study. This was by April et al. in 2020 and published in the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. This kind of addressed a big question that I think a lot of people have and kind of play with in the emergency department, which is we have two agents that we typically reach for in patients that we're concerned about peri-intubation hypotension in, the first being ketamine, which we believe avoids this uh, by inducing catecholamine release, except for possibly in catecholamine-depleted patients, but is associated with some myocardial depression, Uh, and the other being atomidate, which is regarded as hemodynamically neutral, but does cause 24 hours of adrenal suppression of unclear clinical significance. Uh, The study here was a retrospective review of uh, National Emergency Airway Registry records, so the NEAR database, over two years at 25 EDs. And they ended up with about 7,000 patients in this. Essentially, they took anybody who was over 14 years old who required intubation for any reason uh, and was normotensive. So they had to have a blood pressure between 100 and 139 uh, systolic. They could not have been pre-treated with pressors, and they could not have had a preceding cardiac arrest. Uh, And they ended up with 738 of these patients who were intubated with ketamine and about 6,068 intubated with atomidate. They did record the doses, but there was no breakpoint for any of the doses. You could use any dose that physician did. Uh, And the primary outcomes they were looking at here were peri-intubation hypotension, so uh, blood pressure nadir. And they also looked at some other things such as the need for hypotension treatment, so fluids or pressors, patient mortality, and then some other things like patient demographic impact, uh, difficulty of the airway, 
Cormac Lehane grade uh, between these two and then intubation method. Their analysis here was fairly sound, essentially just a chi-square of the two, um, but then went back and did some logistic regression and some logistic regression modeling uh, to kind of control for a few things that were in the near registry, such as uh, the device used, so video or not, uh, patient's body habits, the estimated airway difficulty, pretreatment, and then what paralytic agent was used. And they also broke it down by higher low dose. So for ketamine, higher low dose meant uh, less than or greater than one milligram per kilogram. For Atomidate, it was less than or greater than 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. The results they got uh, showed that ketamine was associated with more hypotension. So 18.3% of the patients in the, the ketamine group experienced hypotension versus 12.4 in Atomidate. And the need for treatment for hypotension was also higher with ketamine at 15.4% versus 18.9%. They went back on that and looked at whether modeling for the, the device used, body habitus, difficulty of the airway, or uh, the paralytic agent had any real impact and essentially got the same results. But looking at that, they did note that there was a higher proportion of trauma patients, patients with difficulty of the airway, video intubations, and septic patients in the ketamine group. First pass success, the cormac lehane grade view and mortality were similar between the two, but they did break the groups down by whether it was a trauma patient or a medical patient. And in trauma patients, looking between the two medications, there was no difference found. Uh, in the medical patients, there was uh, essentially the same difference uh, that we discussed earlier, if not larger. Uh, and then Breaking it down by dose response, they did not get any difference in dose response between higher low-dose ketamine or higher low-dose atomidate. So talking about some of the limitations here, one, there are relatively few people in the ketamine group. This was attributed to atomidate just being the more used um, medication across the country, uh, though I don't know that that necessarily applies to our site. I think a lot more people are likely to use ketamine at this point. This obviously wasn't controlled. You could use whichever medication you wanted in any patient, and you could choose your own dose of that medication. And that seems to have some interplay here with the fact that these ketamine patients appear to be sicker, or at least patients who I would assess as more likely to have hypotension, the septic, and the traumatically injured patients. Not all of the data was necessarily captured, so the near registry just captures a very defined amount of data. They weren't looking through these patients' actual charts. They were just looking at what was recorded in the registry. So we don't know exactly what was happening prior to intubation or in the, the long term after intubation. They also excluded anybody who was already hypotensive um, or requiring pressors. So if we're talking about ketamine as providing this catecholamine release, the most at-risk patients would likely be the ones who already were hypotensive and had you know, depleted their catecholamine stores. So some of these uh, effects might actually be larger looking at that group. And then in this one, the, the breakpoints for these medications weren't necessarily the most useful. So below and above one milligram per kilogram doesn't necessarily make the most sense for ketamine. I mean, one milligram per kilogram is essentially where I start with ketamine dosing. And there are a bunch of other studies, uh, including one French one that looked at one versus two milligrams per kilogram and did find a difference with increased hypotension with a higher dose. So they may be missing some effect there. Things that they did do well, the, the data collection here was fairly rigorous. So all of these sites were chosen ahead of data collection. 
they ensured that they had at least 90% data entry for all of the sites. And they had to submit quarterly assessments of the, the quality of the data that they were getting. It is a relatively large sample size. I don't know that a randomized control trial could be done or could have been done at this time to compare this many patients with these two medications, particularly because industry doesn't necessarily have any reason to fund this. These are both generic medications at this point. So the big takeaways for this, I think, are it's not necessarily the highest level of evidence, and I don't know that this would cause anybody to, to change their practice right away. There's a lot of questions that need to be answered here, and the population that we're usually the most concerned about this in is the patients who are already hypotensive, not these patients who aren't. But this does give me some pause in patients who are hypotensive or seem to be about to fall off that catecholamine cliff when considering ketamine to be the safer medication. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I also think that that is a little bit played out by the difference you see between medical and trauma patients. Um, but that seems to fit pretty well with this idea that people are falling off the catecholamine cliff. You know, the trauma patients very recently injured probably still have good catecholamine stores. The ketamine has some effect there, whereas medical patients who are septic generally didn't get sick an hour ago. They've been brewing this for a while, um, and that may explain some of why ketamine is not as safe as atominate, at least in this trial. Uh, but I think this does lay a nice foundation for a, a future RCT. Uh, that would be kind of interesting to look at not only this, but also how these medications play out in patients who are requiring pressors, requiring resuscitation, or already hypotensive, because that's really where we're getting into to choosing one versus the other. Paper three, pre-medication with midazolam or haloparietal to prevent recovery agitation in adults undergoing procedural sedation with ketamine, a randomized double-blind clinical trial. Hey everyone, um, my name is Megan Frederick. I'm one of the R3s at UCEM, and I'll be talking about our final study today, which is entitled Premedication with Midazolam or Haloperidol to Prevent Recovery Agitation in Adults Undergoing Procedural Sedation with Ketamine, a Randomized Double-Blind Clinical Trial. Um, this was done by Akwagi et al. and was published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2019. We chose to do this article because ketamine conscious sedation is something we do pretty frequently in our department, and it has the potential to be practice changing for us. So in this study, they conducted a randomized double-blind multi-armed study where they compared having five milligrams of IV haldol versus versed of 0 0.05 milligrams per kilogram versus placebo, and they administered one of those five minutes before a one mg per keg dose of ketamine. Their primary outcomes in this study were overall maximum agitation throughout the sedation, and that was assessed by the Pittsburgh Agitation Scale. And then they also looked at the recovery agitation at five minutes, 15 minutes, and 30 minutes post-ketamine and they assessed that with the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale. They also looked at some secondary outcomes, which included overall clinician satisfaction with the sedation and the duration of sedation recovery. So they randomized 185 participants. It's worth noting that these were mostly male and mostly undergoing orthopedic procedures, but that the groups were actually fairly well matched in baseline characteristics. 
they did have some strict inclusion criteria, which eliminated patients with a history of alcoholism who were clinically intoxicated if they had a history of psychiatric illness or dementia structural brain disease. What they actually found with this study was that the maximum agitation measured by the Pittsburgh Agitation Scale was lower in both the Versed and the Haldol groups when compared to placebo by about three points on this 16-point scale. And then additionally, they found that the overall RAS score at points 5, 15, and 30 minutes tended to trend lower throughout the Versed and Helva groups as well. So what's noted in these scores is that also the placebo group typically had a very low score as well, um, with actually the majority of the scores for these patients being lower than what the author deemed as a score that had clinical impact or impeded the procedure trying to be achieved by the sedation anyway. Mostly they got points for vocalizations and mild agitation, but the authors didn't feel that those vocalizations impeded what they were actually trying to do. And then they also didn't know any significant severe emergent reactions in any of the groups. With regards to the secondary outcomes they looked at, no matter which agent was used, either the Versed, Haldol, or placebo, there was no significant change in clinician satisfaction with the procedure or the sedation. What did change, though, was the duration of the sedation, which they defined as the time from the first push of ketamine to the time where the patient was alert or at least arousable by minimal stimulation. In their study, they found that using ketamine alone, they had about an average duration of 18 minutes, whereas in the Versed group, this duration increased to about 35 minutes, and then in the Haldol group, it increased to about 50 minutes. So in summary, The incidence of clinically significant procedurally impactful sedation agitation with ketamine in adults even alone seems pretty rare. However, you can achieve some reduction in associated agitation by using pre-medication doses of Versed or Haldol. But the cost of that is you're going to spend a little bit more time in that sedation with the patient. Um, Some of the strengths of this article or that they use clinically validated standardized scale for the assessment of agitation, which increases reproducibility of the study compared to some similar studies where it was more like clinician gestalt or clinician impression. These are you know, objective scales that we can reproduce pretty easily and allows the study to be compared to any future studies looking at other um, like means to adjunct sedation agitation with ketamine. Some of the weaknesses we mentioned a little bit, the population was predominantly male and so may not technically be widely applicable to your general ED population or at least the population you're doing ketamine sedations in, but I don't know that that is necessarily impactful. Um, Overall, I thought they did a really good job with the study. I thought their randomization process and blinding process was excellent. they did show some significant improvement with Haldol and Versed, but given that the incidence of agitation with ketamine sedation is pretty low to begin with, I don't know that it's something we'll be using in our department given the drastic increase in sedation duration.